Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, everyone. I am Rick Thomas. Thank you so much for joining me for Life Over Coffee. I had a supporting member write in, and they ask a super serious question, so I want to jump right in it. Uh, it's about mental illness and suicide, and so I'm titling this A Biblical Perspective on Mental Illness and Suicide. I do have a lot of ground to cover, so I do want to get into it, but I, I want you to know that if you have a question that you would like for me to work through and develop into an episode like this, I would love to do it. Uh, just write in and let us know what your question is. Maybe it will be something that is applicable to everyone, and if it is like this question here, I would love to consider it and develop an entire episode for you to answer those questions that are most important to you. Now again, this is a biblical perspective on mental illness and suicide, and you can read the complete show notes that I have developed here. There's a lot of material inside these show notes. This is episode 437. You can also watch the video and you can listen to the podcast. So as always, you can read, you can watch, or you can listen and you can share it with 1,000 of your closest friends. And I would love it if you shared it. All right, so here's the question that the supporting member wrote in and asked. Rick, what is the relationship between mental illness and suicide? Is that the best way to ask my question? If not, how would you frame the problem or a person who commits suicide? What does the Bible say? I deal with many desperate people who are Christian and non-Christian, and the normalization of suicide over the past few years has created not just an interest in self-harm, but an acceptable solution to commit suicide. What are your thoughts? Now, that is a, a complex question, but I want to bring it down to really the main thing that the person is asking here is about mental illness. Is that the label that we want to place over the reason that someone commits suicide? And so that is the question. It's not really a path forward of how to talk to someone or how to counsel someone with suicidal ideation, though what I'm going to share with you in part will help in part. Now, I do have quite a few resources on depression, uh, on anger, uh, on suffering, on mental illness, and so we have, and suicide. I have a lot of resources, and so you can go on our website at lifeovercoffee.com, and you can find more content that you can look through if you are counseling or trying to help someone who is struggling with suicide. But the specific question that they're asking here, is mental illness the right label over the right door that sends you down the right pathway in order to understand suicide. And so as I begin answering that question in three parts, I want to talk about my worldview. I want to share some scriptures with you. And then I want to get into what I call a global investigation as things that you need to consider when a person is thinking about suicide. And so for the sake of full disclosure, I do need to let you know what my worldview is. Of course, my question asker here already knows because he's asking, what does the Bible say? 
the starting point to answer a question like this is always determined by your presupposition and your worldview. Your presupposition is your belief system. Your worldview is your interpretive filter. And so when I think about mental illness, I do have a presupposition and I do have a worldview. And maybe the most succinct way to tell you what my presupposition and worldview are is I have a, I come at this from a sufficiency of scripture presupposition and worldview. And so what is a presupposition? A presupposition is like, it is what you believe before you ever step into addressing or looking at a situation. It is the lens through which you look at everything. I have a a presupposition that is bibliocentric. I have a sufficiency of scripture worldview that might not be yours, but I want you to know uh, for full disclosure's sake what mine is. Uh, I, if you want to study more about presupposition, I would encourage you to uh, study Cornelius Van Til. Uh, he did a lot of work in presuppositional apologetics. One of his students, John Frame, uh, had him as a prof at one time and a very intelligent and humble man who has done a lot of work in presuppositional apologetics. And one of the things that Van Til taught is that there are no neutral facts. And what that means is it doesn't matter what you look at. whatever it is, you already have an interpretive filter through which you look at in order to interpret that fact, which makes that fact not neutral. For example, I'm holding up a Yeti here, and you could have three people looking at this Yeti, and they could have three different interpretations of what they see because they're looking through three different filters, their own personal filter. And this is what Uh, Van Til was getting at when he talked about no neutral or what he would say no brute facts. And so I have a presupposition that is a bibliocentric lens. And so before I ever look at anything, it's important for you to know that I am looking through uh, the filter of of the Bible. And so that is my presupposition. And then my worldview my worldview believes that the Bible is the proper interpretive, uh, proper filter for interpreting data. That is my hermeneutic. Hermeneutics, the study of hermeneutics, is the science of Bible interpretation. Uh, it is how we interpret things. And so my lens is bibliocentric. My uh, interpretive tools are the Bible. And so by the time I get to the word uh, mental illness, it has, from my starting point, is the Bible. The interpretive data, the tools that I use is the Bible. And so that's going to give me a specific conclusion that I come to. Therefore, with all that said, I do not use the culture's term mental illness. That's not a label that I use. You may hear me say it sometime in a shorthand way because people, they can connect with it, but I don't believe that is the proper way or the best way to describe a very real problem. And it's important that you hear that. I am not suggesting that a person cannot have an organic problem that could lead to suicide. I am not suggesting that at all. Uh, They can have an organic problem and a non-organic problem. They can have a physical and spiritual problem, a body and soul problem. That is very true. I just would not label it as mental illness. That is not a label that I would use. 
And the reason, one of the reasons for that is, is because mental illness is a narrow interpretive pathway that typically involves uh, some predictable solutions, medication, a lifetime prognosis, a drug habituation. And so mental illness is like looking through a tube and it gives you a very narrow pathway uh, that you're going down that's going to come to some predictable conclusions or solutions. And I say that that is a problem. When you look at suicide and the problems that lead to suicide through a bibliocentric filter, which I'm going to uh, present to you in just a few moments, what you're going to see is an expansive way of data collecting, an expansive way of global investigation of trying to understand the many different reasons that a person would commit suicide. And when we say mental illness, it is one narrow label that we slap on all individuals who choose to take their lives. And I don't believe that to be true. And if, we wa if we're wanting to help somebody who has suicidal ideation, rather than just saying that they have mental illness and then typically giving the same solutions that you need to be on medication, it is a lifetime prognosis, it is a drug habituation, and this is your only path forward, the Bible gives, it, it just opens this this whole idea up into something that's so expansive. And then within that interpretive, expansive filter that you have, you have many different unique situations. And so your soul care can be more customized to the person that is sitting in front of you, which will be different from the second and the third and the fourth person sitting in front of you who are struggling with the same problems, but how they got there and the solutions to help them to get through it will be different because the Bible gives us that kind of assorted information and assorted conclusions and, uh, and assorted pathways to help a person to overcome. For example, uh, here are some synonymous questions that I would ask, and then I want to tease these out in just a moment. But here, here's one of the questions that you would ask. How is fallenness connected to or contribute to suicide? Now, that is a generic question. How is fallenness connected to or how does it contribute to suicide? That word fallenness is the operative word. But when you open the lid to fallenness and look inside of it, it is going to be so broad. There's going to be so many things packed inside of that word. And what I'm going to do, like Mary Poppins opening up her bag, I'm just going to start pulling things out of that word fallenness. And you're going to look at it like, wow, there's so many possibilities here. And that's why we need discernment. Uh, that's why we need the competence to be able to look at an individual and help them in a customizable way. Another way to, to ask the same question, how is fallenness connected to or contributes to suicide, you could say, how can an organically, physically, and non-organically, spiritually broken, Adamic person commit suicide? And so now I've taken fallenness and I've divided it into a dichotomy of organic and non-organic. So there's two things that I just pulled out of Mary Poppins' bag 
Now I want to look at the organic issues here, and I want to look at the non-organic issues, uh, but I've labeled that as an Adamic person. That's the fallenness part. And why would a, a broken person from a non-organic perspective and an organic perspective, why would they commit suicide? Here's another way of asking the same question. How does our birth in Adam connect to suicide? Or how does our rebirth in Christ connect to suicide? Because that's another complexity. Because Christians can and have committed suicide as well. And so it's not only the fallenness of Adam from an organic, non-organic perspective, But it is a person who is fallen, but yet they have been born again as well. And so how does that add to this problem? There are many more factors as to why a man or why a person commits suicide. The all-inclusive, fully encompassing term that we're talking about here is total depravity. Total depravity could be a, a synonym for fallenness, and the word or the words total depravity is a far more desperate commentary on the Adamic damages to our souls that the culturally accepted term mental illness just cannot touch. You see, we are wasted. We were born in Adam, totally depraved. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.16 that we are wasting away. Not only are we totally depraved, but we, it's increasing entropy. It's increasing chaos. It's increasing wasting away. Sometimes I've described it this way, that humanity is like a a sheet of plywood, a four by eight sheet of plywood. And then they become a Christian. And so now you uh, gold plate that sheet of plywood. It is a gold plated sheet of plywood. It is beautiful. It is gorgeous. But what you don't see is that inside that gold plating is a piece of plywood that is wasting away, is continuing to deteriorate. Yes. Yeah, we are gold. Yeah, as Job said in chapter 23, I shall come forth as gold. We are gold. We have been born again if you are a Christian, but we are still, we still have this wasting away as Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians 4, 16. And so you could look at a person who's gold plated, who is a Christian and maybe don't have the intuitive sense to recognize that this person is wasting away. And so what is the wasting away effect on that individual? And then they commit suicide. And it's like, wow, I didn't know. Well, it can happen. It can happen. And when I talk about wasting away and total depravity and Adamic fallenness, it's also including the noetic effect of sin, meaning that our minds come under the utter ruin of Adamic fallenness. We are messed up. And so that is my presupposition. That is my worldview. And then what I would want to do If I was thinking about a person that was committing suicide with that kind of presupposition, I would want to get into this dichotomized fallenness of organic and and non-organic and try to understand the unique individual that is sitting before me. And so with that in mind, I want to give you a partial list of, of the Bible's perspective on our troubled souls and the baggage that we carry, the things that happen to us the challenges that disturb our shalom and our contentment, even tempting us or tempting someone to want to commit suicide. For example, here's a verse in John 3, 36. 
The Bible says, whosoever believes in the Son, Jesus Christ, has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This text is teaching us that God's displeasure rains down on people who reject Christ. You also see a similar verse in Romans chapter 1, verses 18, uh, verse 18, where Paul wrote this. He says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They press the truth of God out of their lives. Just in these two verses of John 3.36 and Romans 1.18, we see that there is an entire world of people who are not born again, who reject Christ. And though they may not believe this, that's kind of irrelevant. Though they do not know this, the wrath of God is pressing down on them, and they are choosing to press God's truth out of their lives, and God's wrath continues to press down on them. They are angry people. They do not have peace. They're very discontented. Their souls are troubled, and they're looking for all kinds of mechanisms to try to have that shalom of the soul, and their souls can only be set free by Christ. And so that gives you a high-def understanding of why someone could, would commit suicide, not even realizing that God's wrath is raining down on them. And the more pressure that they feel, they continue to reject God by pushing His truth out of their lives, which further complicates their lives. Uh, we also read in Romans 1.21, this is three verses later, Paul says, for although they knew God, these people who pressed the truth out of their lives, for although they knew God, meaning their conscience, their inner voice, they, had a, they have a hidden morality, an inner, internal morality. Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Think about that. Why would a person commit suicide? I think it's pretty easy to understand. They have futile thinking, and their hearts are getting progressively darker in proportion to them rejecting God. At some point, you just want to give up on life. At some point, I mean, initially, that anger that we have inside of us, we express it toward other people. But at some point, some people in their futile thinking choose to take that anger and express it on themselves even up to the point of committing suicide. Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 4, verses 17, 18, and 19, he said this, I say and I testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, which is what he said in Romans 121. They are darkened in their understanding. They are alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, to greed, a greedy, to practice every unkind, every kind of impurity in Ephesians 4. And then Paul goes on in verses 22 and to 24, he says, but you put off that. 
You put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Here's your hope here in Christ and put on a new self. It's created differently from all of that that I have been describing. It's created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and, and true holiness. Those are just a few verses that really give us that high-definition understanding as to why a person would commit suicide. And when you take what I've just been saying and then just slap the label mental illness on it, you see how narrow it is. You see how it misses the mark totally. And so my question asker is asking, he says, you know, I'm dealing with people uh, that are committing suicide and I want to know what is the relationship between mental illness and suicide. And then he says, humbly, is that the best way to talk about this? Well, I say no. And so number one, I share with you my, my presupposition. I share with you my worldview. And now I, I, I just share with you a, just a few verses. Uh, but my goodness, you could go, there, there's hundreds of verses that will speak as to why a person would be tempted to commit uh, suicide. The Bible just really opens up our minds to think in a very expansive global way as to why a person would do it. And so now you can do customized care rather than just doing the autopsy and say he had mental illness and then just checking the box and closing the door. That offers no hope for the next person. It doesn't give us a path forward and it's kind of a hopeless way a lifelong of medication as the maybe that will be the solution for you. Or what we could do is that we can get inside of what's going on here. We can bring the Bible to bear, like these few verses that I've shared with you. And then we can start trying to understand more of this Adamic fallenness or total depravity. And so now what I want to do is I wrap up. I want to take Mary Poppins' bag and I want to open it even more broadly and I want to look inside of it. And I'm going to present to you some questions things to think about. I'm just going to give you a partial list of some of the global elements that fall under the Bible's superior and all-sufficiency scrutiny. Now, this list of questions that I'm going to give you is not in any order of priority. It's just merely examples of the superiority of God's Word when trying to understand human fallenness. And I have about 16 questions here. And so if you want to get all of these, you can just go to episode 437 and you can copy paste. You can take that link and, and share it and you can have some wonderful discussions with people or uh, you can begin diagnosing yourself as to what is wrong with me. These would be excellent questions for personal self-diagnosis. Whether you're struggling with suicide or not, it will give you a, a, an excellent portrait, an anatomy, so to speak, a diagnosis of who you are. So question number one, I would want to know a person's soul capacity. In 1 Thessalonians 5.14, Paul talked about the faint-hearted person. And when you get into the, the actual meaning of that word, you, you will come up with small soul, meaning some people have a smaller soul than, than other people, which makes sense because we're all different internally. Our non-organic self, our spiritual selves, or our soul is different. Now, uh, faint-hearted, 
or I think the King James says feeble-minded, part of what that means is a person with a shriveled soul, small souls, like a shriveled soul or a shriveling soul. So maybe the person had a, a strong soul capacity, but due to things that have happened to them, their soul begins to shrivel. This is what Paul is saying. People who are given to worry, anxiety, guilt, shame, fear, those are five words that we all probably struggle with to some degree. And some people struggle with those words more than others. And if, if your mind is captivated by worry, anxiety, guilt, shame, fear, it will create a shriveling effect to your soul. That's kind of the idea of a, of a small soul person. And so if a person is, and some people are given that way. I mean, we have three children and, and if you have more than one child, you know how different they are, how they think internally, how they uh, process things, how they are uh, at the level of their souls. Uh, some can tend to worry more and some can just let things roll off their back. Uh, my, my wife is like that, for example. She just doesn't worry a lot. She doesn't allow thoughts to take her mind captive. So she doesn't have a shriveled or a shriveling soul. She doesn't have a small soul. But if you're talking to someone and you begin to realize that, that their thoughts have been captivated in such a way with, with things that would connote worry or anxiety or guilt or shame or fear, it's like, ooh, well, that's a small soul person. And so that means this. But then if you talk to them and realize that they have the ability to take those thoughts captive and they're not managed by such things, okay, well, then you can dismiss that. And so question number one, what is their soul capacity? 1 Thessalonians 5.14, the faint-hearted, the small soul. Number two, what is their IQ? That is another soul element that you would want to look at. Is there retardation with this person? Are they dumb? Uh, Forrest Gump, uh, an IQ of 85. Are they average like me? Are they smart? Or do they belong to Mensa International? Uh, Mensa International is a group of people that uh, they, they, they rank in the two percentile of people through different testing. The tests are different uh, for, in, in different geographical regions, but uh, these individuals take the test and they rank in the uh, 99 and the 100 percentile, and they're in the upper 2%, and, and they belong to Mensa International. Let's just say that I'm not in that group. I just fit within the average group. But there is a gradation here. And that is hugely important. I mean, even our military knows that, that there has to be a certain IQ level in order to participate in the military. And so what is their IQ? It's just another way of trying to understand the internal capacities of an individual. Number three, how have they been educated? And what effect has education and the education environment had on them? That's two types of questions. And so, I mean, were they homeschooled, public school, Christian school? some other type of school? Did they graduate? Uh, did they graduate number one or number 231, you know, in their class? And what was that experience like for them? My education experience was, I would say it's not that great. And it had a, it had a, it was a, had a huge uh, shaping influence, adverse shaping influence on me. It was just not a fun, my 12 years of 
of a school. College was much better. But my first 12 years of school was just not fun. That education environment was very hard on me for many reasons. But then there's also the, the education that I received as well. And those are things that you would want to look at. Number four, is their conscience, is it hard? Is it weak? Uh, how has their conscience been shaped by personal choices that they have made or external shaping influences, things that other people have done to them, like uh, a, 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 an angry father, divorced parents, uh, other individuals, authority figures in their life when they were young in those first 10 years, for example, uh, positive shaping influences or adverse shaping influences. How have those shaping influences uh, had some kind of management over their conscience? And then how are their personal choices? Because our conscience, our inner voice is moldable. And so we can have a weak conscience we can have a hard conscience because we just keep sinning and keep justifying our actions until it's almost like morality doesn't penetrate us at all and we just do anything that we, we want. And so understanding the makeup and the mobility of their conscience, number four, is important. Number five, describe their negative spiritual issues like fear, apathy, anger, greed, selfishness, deception, lust, etc. There's a long list here. And so now let's think about the spiritual issues, the negative ones. I'll get to the positive ones in just a moment. But, but, but some people can be so captivated. I talked about this with the shriveling soul, with fear. Uh, I, I talked about the hard conscience with deception, but there's other negative spiritual issues that you would want to look at, apathy and anger and greed, uh, selfishness, lust, and you can, there's, some, there's, there's hundreds more. And then number six, the other side of the coin, describe their positive spiritual issues like hope, peace, love, security, truth-telling, the opposite of deception. Their thoughts about God, their thoughts about themselves, their thoughts about others, their thoughts about eternity, their positive spiritual issues. The first one I mentioned here was hope. Well, suicide is the antithesis of hope. And so if you're dealing with a person who has a lot of hope, well, you're probably not dealing with a suicidal person. But if you're dealing with a person that doesn't have much hope, which is usually a suicidal person, well, then you won't. Maybe that is a pathway that you want to go down that they don't have hope, and we need to figure out why they don't have hope, along with these other things that I've mentioned in the first five questions that I've asked you, the negative spiritual issues, their conscience, their education, their IQ, and then also their soul size. And so now we're at number six, their positive spiritual issues. Number seven, have they been regenerated? Have they been gold-plated? And what does growing up in Christ look like for them? which leads to number eight. Are they infants in Christ? Are they mature believers? Are they immature, but they should be mature? This is what the Hebrew writer was saying in, in Hebrews 5, verses 12 and following. For by this time you ought to be teachers, but you're still babes. And, and so what does regeneration look like? What does that gold plating look like? Is it a thin veneer of gold because they're infants in Christ? Or are they mature believers or nominal Christians, etc.? Number nine, what have been their shaping influences? Past, current, what are the effects of both of those? 
We talk a lot in our ministry about the first 10 years of a, of a person's life. That is really a cement-setting time in any of our lives because we're so vulnerable, we're so weak, we're so impressionable. And so whatever happens to us, it, it, it's imprinting, it settles in on our souls. Many of you have done this. Uh, we did this when we were children that uh, we poured a walkway in our ha at our home, our family home, and then our parents let us put our, our footprint in it. So they're like five footprints that are five different sizes, kind of cute. And it's there forever as long as the cement is. And that's what happens to children. And then we spend our lives working through those shaping influences if they've been bad. And I've talked to people that are in their 50s, and I have stories I'll refrain but for time, but, but they would talk about how what happened to them. They, they talk about what happened to them when they were eight, and they're 55 now, and it's like it just happened yesterday. And so when you're helping someone with suicidal ideation, meaning their minds are fixated, on self-harm, uh, you want to look, think about their shaping influences, past and current, and the effects of, of both. Number 10, what were their family dynamics as a child, and what about now? Number 11, what about their physical well-being? How, how, how are they engaging the wasting away dynamic that Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians? 4.16. Now we're looking inside that gold-platedness at the actual plywood that's wasting away. How are they engaging that? Which leads to question number 12. What are their past habits, habituations? What are their current habits, habituations? And your answer should encompass the spiritual habits like truth-telling versus deception. I talked about that earlier. Spiritual habits, truth-telling versus deception. But they also should encompass their organic habits, their behavioral habits, the physical ones, smoking, for example, versus exercise, eating poorly versus eating well. And so how have their past habits and current habits, whether it's spiritual habits or physical habits, how is that impacting them? What I want you to see here is that when you get into the Bible— it just opens up a thousand questions, which gives you the ability to do customized care to the individual rather than just saying he's got mental illness and here's the narrow pathway that he must go down. Number 13, what has been the effect of a parent on them as a child? I pull this out of the shaping influence uh, question and, and make it a standalone question because it's just that important. Number 14, what are the effects of their current relationships that they have? Describe these influences. Number 15, what have been the, the cultural influences from past and present? What part of the world are they from? Did they have the privilege of being reared in the uh, redneck South like me? Or do they have the not so much of a privilege to be uh, reared in the Tony cosmopolitan north like many? Uh, what part of the country, what part of the world? What generation were they born in? Uh, for those of you who are a few generations back like I am, you understand that question. Uh, as I've said many times, I thank God I wasn't born in this generation because I'd be a dead duck. I mean, the accessibility of so many things, and uh, it's just horrific. And so what about the cultural influences? Uh, that uh, 
that this person has. And then finally, number 16, what have been the effects of common grace on them? Uh, talking about poverty and affluence, that's a common grace thing. Access to the medical community, education opportunities, vocational possibilities. Those are just a few common grace. And what I mean by common grace, it's God's mercy on everyone, whether they're saved or lost. God uh, gives us possibilities. He gives us grace, what we do not deserve, to everyone. The, the rain comes down on the just and the unjust. And I just mentioned a few here, but you want to think about the effects of common grace on them. Poverty, affluence, access to the the medical community, education opportunities, vocational possibilities. So I have just gone through a list of 16 questions to think about when you're trying to discern why a person would commit suicide. The Bible is the best assessment tool that we have to understand humanity. God has given believers a high privilege to access it, plus the Spirit of God to illuminate our minds in the context of competent bibliocentric communities to understand the things that are wrong with us, including suicidal ideation. I'm answering the question, a biblical perspective on mental illness and suicide. Uh, my questioner, our supporting member, asked, what does the Bible say? And well, there's my response. Let me wrap up with a couple of questions. Why is mental illness too narrow of a reason a person kills themselves? themselves? Number two, what do you think about the Bible's expansive data that helps you understand the human condition? Number three, what is your presupposition for determining how to live well? There are no neutral facts. We all look at the same thing, but because of our interpretive filter, uh, we come to different conclusions. What is your presupposition for determining how to live well, and why do you believe what you do? And then number four, what is your worldview? What's your toolbox, your hermeneutic? What are the tools, the way that you interpret it from whatever your presupposition is? What is your worldview for determining how to live well? And why do you believe what you do? Finally, number five, in what way do you need to mature in understanding the human condition, the gold-platedness and that, that wasting away piece of plywood that we don't see so that we can bring transformative answers. If you want to read my show notes, what I just shared with you, go to episode 437. The address is lifeovercoffee.com. Come into our coffee shop. Look for the particular cup of coffee that says a biblical perspective on mental illness and suicide. Thank you so much for listening. God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.